0: I am so privileged to be here. Thank you, Ron. I love this church. I've only been here a day, 24 hours, but I love this place. I've been so impressed by how God's at work. If you just pay attention in the media, you will think every church is filled with a bunch of hypocritical, self-centered leaders, and we're just a bunch of idiots, but that's just not true. Uh, I love to come to church and say, No, look at these great people, these humble leaders who have integrity and people who are serving with their whole hearts. It's amazing how God's so obviously working here. And I'm very thankful to have just a very little part in that and just giving a nudge to where things are obviously already careening with God's power. So I'm thankful to be here. I don't take this lightly. I come. Under the authority of my church, the leaders in the congregation there, Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, I come with their blessing as well. They are thrilled that I get to do things like this. They prayed for me in their 6.30 a.m. prayer time as the elders gathered this morning as I was here and sent me a text at 6.30 saying, We're praying for you. And I'm glad to be here. They're praying for you as as we minister together here. I'm also here representing my family I live with on a daily basis in addition to my church family that's my amazing wife Donna who I love dearly we met in high school and she's brilliant and beautiful and wise and good and patient and Caroline we we uh, were married for 18 years before we had any children and in 8 years we acquired and in 7 years we acquired four children all who only spoke chinese And we're older and had had hard lives before that. And we are so grateful that God's now made us a family of six. Caroline, standing in the middle, turns 16 next week. So please pray for me. Um, And she's beautiful and I'm terrified. And. Uh, no, I'm really not. God is so good. And she's an amazing girl. We had set. We had a sweet 16 birthday party for her uh, Friday night before I flew out the next morning to come here. And she said, Daddy, I don't want just my friends. I want the families in our life to be here. And so 75 people came over Friday night. <laughs> And uh, and it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful time. And then Paige over my right shoulder is actually with me. She's in the, with the youth group right now. She loves to hang out with her dad. She'll get up and go to early prayer time with me. and And so Paige is my traveling partner uh, this weekend, and she's here, and she's delightful and filled with enthusiasm and energy. And then Sam, in your lower left is a ten year old, funny, handsome, amazing boy. He's from the same orphanage as my girls. The social worker called and said, we've got a boy who was adopted a year ago from the same orphanage as your girls in Taiwan, and the family's giving him up after a year, so will you take him? And he needs a home today. And we said, can you give us till tomorrow? And so we went and got Sam the next day. And then a year ago, we went and got Isaac in China. So uh, he's, he's got some disabilities that he's had surgeries for by now, and he'll have about seven more. And the doctor met him and after five minutes said, God gave this boy the spirit he needs to get through all the things he needs to go through. But he's hilarious and joyful, and he does push-ups. And every push-up he'll say, Strong for China, strong for China. <laughs> And we're trying to get in the switch to strong for Jesus, but we haven't haven't done it yet. I'm hoping that China, Taiwan—if you know anything about international relations—that's a bad combination to have in the home. But uh, we we love uh, we have more Asian kids than most Asian people, and we like it that way. It's wonderful. Um, I could go on and on about my kids. What I want to talk about this morning is Jesus and the fact that He's alive. And that we are called to have communion with Christ. The Christian religion is so radically different than any other religion there is. And it's because Jesus is alive. The religious leader we follow didn't just give us a life and messages and words to follow. He's still here. He's here right now. He's alive and active and present. We actually have an ongoing dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ as Christians. Do you realize how radically different that is than any other religious leader? He, he leads us to communion with Him. And that's what the Christian faith is. It's, it's an actual relationship with our Creator, with God Himself in Christ an astounding thing. We have communion. You know how we take the Lord's Supper? And it's called communion. We intimately, personally, dynamically, actively relate to Jesus. I remember reading this quotation by J.I. Packer in a book he wrote on the Puritans. Listen to what Packer says. The Puritans were concerned about communion with God in a way we are not. The measure of our unconcern about communion with God is the little we say about it. When Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work and Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches and the problems of theology, but rarely of their daily experience of God. I remember reading that years ago and being struck with conviction, thinking, if someone listened to me talk, Would they come away with the undeniable realization, no matter what they believe about Jesus, but would they come away realizing that that guy really believes Jesus is real and present and at work in his life? And I thought, have I slipped into a way of talking where I talk about Christian things, but not about Christ as a living, active person in my life? Well, I want to think this morning about communing with Christ. And the way I want to get there is in Luke 24, a phenomenal story that will take us deeper in our knowledge and understanding and relationship with Jesus. That's my prayer. Luke 24, verse 13. It's an event that happens the day Jesus rose from the dead. Luke twenty four thirteen. If you need a Bible, please, we're really going to be in it. And so would you raise your hand? The ushers would love to bring you a Bible that, that you could, could look at with us. Luke 24, verse 13. Here we go. Just buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. That very day, the day Jesus rose from the dead, two of them, disciples of Jesus, we were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept. From recognizing Him. Oh, this is interesting. God, for some reason, which we'll see in a bit, is keeping them from seeing that it's Jesus before them. This is actually a really fun way to hear a story. Are there any Columbo fans in here? (laughs) Yes! Yes! I knew this was a classy crowd. If you've never seen Columbo, it, it's a very different kind of murder mystery because the first ten minutes of the show, you see what? You see the murder. You see the crime take place in detail. And you think, well, where's the suspense in that? Where's the mystery in that? Where's the fun in that story? Oh, if you are a Columbo fan, you know that... There's a fascinating ride you go in when you watch Columbo figure out what you already know. You know what I'm talking about. He's wa- he walks in again and says, you know, it's not just making sense because I have two more questions that I just aren't adding up. And you're thinking, yes, Columbo, keep going down that road. Indeed, she did it. Keep going. You're on the right path, buddy. And it's really a, a fascinating journey. Well, Columbo writers just stole that, that storytelling method from Luke. Because that's what we're seeing. We are watching these two discover what we already know. That Jesus is with them. Risen from the dead. And they don't know it yet. Watch. Watch. Their eyes are kept from recognizing. Verse 17. And He, Jesus, said to them, What is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then, one of them named Cleopas. Now, I'm not sure, but I actually think this is Jesus' uncle Cleopas. and, And probably his Aunt Mary walking back home to Emmaus. As well as disciples. He knows these people. He loves these people. He cares much for them, and so he comes alongside them on the road. And Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? That is funny. (laughs) If you weren't sure, I want you to be sure that that is funny. The Bible's mostly serious, but sometimes it's very funny. And I think Luke is probably the funniest author in the Bible. And this is one of his funny moments. What Cleopas is saying to Jesus is, in the Greek, it's, Duh! Uh, What, do you live under a rock? You need to get out more. Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know about Jesus? And he's talking to Jesus. Yes. We get in interesting situations as humans, don't we? And Jesus just keeps it going right down that road. Watch, verse 19. And He said to them, What things? That's funny, but it's more than funny. It's kind. It's patient. It's good ministry. When you struggle, when you're sad, when you're filled with doubt, When you're confused, the best thing you can do is go back to the beginning. When a student or someone in my church will come and and they're they're just in a a rough time, I will often say, tell me how you came to Christ in the beginning. Tell me how He's worked in your life. We're forgetful people. And it's good maybe to go all the way back to six years old or 15 at a camp or, or 20 at a church or in rehab at 30. Where, wherever it was, remind yourself how He met you and cared for you and loved you. He says, what things? Rehearse them one more time. It's not because Jesus doesn't know the things that had happened to Him. It's because He's so kind and as a good minister says, say it one more time. Recount these things for your own heart one more time. Give testimony to what you've seen and what you've heard and how He met you and how He changed you. We need to be that for each other. And call that out of each other. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's being so wonderfully kind. He says, what things? And they said to Him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered Him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. We need to pause there and notice the tense of their hope. You remember grammar? When you first learned grammar, every verb has a tense. Past, present, or future tense. What is the tense of their hope? Past. They don't have hope right now. But the fact is, every reason for hope they could ever need is right there with them. Jesus is with them. The hopes and fears of all the years were met in Him that night. And He is here now in this morning and was with them on that morning. Jesus is here. Our hope is present tense. Never let your hope slip into past tense. Make sure it's present tense with radical implications for the future. Always be filled with hope. Jesus is here. He'll never leave you. Never forsake you. He's here. Their hope is past tense. But what else happens? We had hoped He was the one to redeem Israel. Verse 21. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find His body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Him they did not see. And He said to them, "Oh, foolish ones and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory and then listen to this sermon? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Oh, what a sermon that must have been. So, they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. really think there's a playfulness in Jesus. I think he's so excited about what they're about to discover. And he continues the work with them so brilliantly. Again, calling out desire from them. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So He went in to stay with them. And then they sit down at the dinner table, friends. And watch what happens. He sat down with them. Verse 30. When He was at table with them, He took the bread and blessed, lifted it up and broke it and gave it to them. And then, Maybe because they remembered the Last Supper where Jesus did those very things of taking the bread and blessing it and breaking it and giving it. Maybe they saw the nail scars in His hands. But most certainly because the Holy Spirit decided, now's the time. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized Him. And he vanished from their sight. Come on. This is a great story. This is just awesome. I love this story. It's so good. Now, you would think at this moment, they would say, it's she. Where'd you go? Why? No way. Come back. Oh, we were with him the whole time. He shows himself and poof, he's gone. What kind of revelation is that? Hey, they'd be mad. They weren't. Listen. They're just so satisfied and fulfilled and exulting in the revelation. They said to each other, verse 32, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and, listen to these words, returned to Jerusalem. Oh, do you get this scene here? You see what's happening. They're heading back home in discouragement, in despondence and fear and confusion and disappointment. Heads hung, heading home. In defeat, Jesus dies on a cross. They meet Jesus in His resurrected power and they turn and they head back to Jerusalem, leaving behind their despair and discouragement and hopelessness and filled with hope and emboldened with courage. They head back to the place of challenge, to the place of persecution, to the place of difficulty because they're filled with hope that the resurrection has given them. They head back to Jerusalem. Don't miss that image of turning back, leaving their disappointment behind and heading back in hope to the place of difficulty. Walking into it with confidence. And they do that. And they walk into the room. Watch. They head back to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven halfway through 33. And those who were with them gathered together saying, and I think that the, the eleven start bursting in before the two can talk and say, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then the two break in and say, They told what had happened on the road. And how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Oh, come on. Even if the Bible wasn't the Word of God, it's an awesome story. This one and every other. It's just such an incredible story. And there it is. The first thing we need to draw from this great story is the fact that we serve a risen Savior. A living God. I started off by saying this, that Christianity is a relationship with a living God. A risen Savior. He's alive and will be forevermore. Do you realize how this distinguishes Jesus from every other religious leader there ever is? No matter who it is. Muhammad, or Buddha, or Gandhi, or Confucius, or Oprah, or whatever religious leader (laughs) you may be thinking of, they're all dead and she will be. (laughs) And Jesus isn't. He's risen from the dead and this is the center point of His ministry for us. It wasn't enough for Him to die for us. I mean, f- uh, faithful, faithful soldiers die for each other. They die for people. They'll dive on a grenade in selfless sacrifice. Charlie was, uh, was telling me about his time in Vietnam. and There's courage, but you know what? That's not enough for us. Even that sort of amazing courage and self-sacrifice won't take care of our sins. It, it won't solve our problem of ultimate death. We needed Jesus to rise from the dead. He needed to do that for us. And he did. It's not just the resurrection, something to put in our creeds. It's a power that should invade our lives. If you're a believer this morning who's turned from the way home of despair and turned toward the place of challenge and following Jesus in new life, you have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead at work in you. That's true of the believer. You now have new life in Christ. And although you may die physically in this life, you'll never die spiritually. And you'll be resurrected physically one day to live forevermore, following in Jesus' wake in his resurrection. Oh, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' perfect life and perfect sacrifice. And resurrection brings power and confirmation that it all worked, it was all true, it was all real. Our security, our confidence in, in, is in that resurrection. But I want you to notice actually how Luke ends his gospel. He doesn't end it with a resurrection. He ends it with what we call the ascension. Verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. Don't Minimize the importance of that. We worship Jesus this morning, but for good monotheistic Jews who believe there is only one God, for them to come to realize that this one God is now eternally expressed as Father, Son, and Spirit so that they worship the Son, Jesus, their fishing buddy. That's awesome. That That's just incredible. And so... So they worship Him and return to Jerusalem with great joy and continually are in the temple, blessing God. So the resurrection happens, and then the ascension happens. Luke ends His Gospel this way, and He begins the book of Acts this way, with the ascension, with Jesus ascending in their midst. It's a greatly neglected doctrine that I neglected for years. But do you realize how important the ascension is? It's God showing us three very important things about Jesus. So He ascends in their midst, Into the heavens and is now seated at the right hand of God in the place of power and prestige and authority, ruling and reigning. And so the first thing we have affirmed about Jesus' resurrection then in the ascension is that his ascension shows us the resurrections forever. Jesus is the only person who's ever risen from the dead, right? People in the Old Testament did. People on on Good Friday did. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And guess what? They're all dead. Now, can you imagine being Lazarus' family at funeral part two? (laughs) This is a bummer. It's bad enough to have to do it once. It feels like a deja vu. Well, actually... It did happen before. Not Jesus. He had one funeral, never to have another. He lives forever. The ascension shows us that. That he ascended. He didn't just ride off into the sunset to die again. Two, it shows us that shows us that this humanity that the eternal son took to himself is a permanent thing. He's human. He didn't just borrow humanity, borrow the keys to humanity, and take it for a spin. No. He became permanently united in a human nature to us. And so His ministry for us goes on. It's not like humanity's not like the fuselage of the space shuttle that comes off as He goes back into heaven. No, He endures in His human nature and human body even, representing us right now and forever. Paul says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, present tense. He's human. It's been said, it will be a human hand that flings open the gates of heaven for you. It needs to be. He's our mediator. He's our advocate before the judge, presenting case the case from the evidence of his life, not yours, and that's great news. And the last thing the ascension assures us of is that he's coming back. See, it's a very important doctrine. I have a, fr- a Hispanic friend. His name is Chon, and one day I asked him, after knowing him for quite a while, "Hey, is Chon your given name or a nickname?" He said, "It's a nickname for people who have my given name." And I said, "What's your given name?" And he said, "Oh, it's Ascension." And I said, like, the Ascension? You're named after the Ascension? And he said, yeah, why? And he's backing up, sort of afraid of me. And I'm, I'm saying, yeah, and I preach that little sermon I just did to him right in my backyard. And I say, the Ascension? You're named after the Ascension? That's an important dog." I mean, come on, don't you love Hispanic people? I mean, what, other people name their kids after people in the Bible, Rebecca, Abraham, but Hispanic people. Like my next door neighbor, her maiden name was Esperanza de la Cruz. Hope of the cross. We have a better name than that. Right? I mean, white people name their, their kids after people in the Bible. Hispanic people name their kids after entire doctrines in the Bible. I mean, that's fantastic. The Ascension deserves naming your kid after. Because it assures that Jesus is alive. He's ruling and reigning now. And he's coming back. And he's human forever. Here's what else I want you to notice. We know Christ according to the Scriptures. I mean, think about this. Jesus shows up on the scene, and He wants to reveal Himself to His discouraged friends and maybe family members. And no doubt, He's excited and and eagerly wanting to do this, but He's so brilliant in how He does it, so differently than I would have. Did you notice how He does it? Look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And then as we saw, when they reflect back on this experience, they say what in verse 32? Did not our hearts burn with us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? And look at verse 44. When He appears to the rest of the disciples, He says, These are My words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. The Scriptures. Think about that. Look at Jesus' method of revealing himself to them. It's nothing like I would have done it. If I had discouraged, hopeless friends that I wanted to encourage with this truth, I would not have a Bible study. Do you know what I would do? I would... Come sprinting down that road to Emmaus saying, wait, I'm alive. Don't be sad. I'm no, I would have appeared right in front of him and said, I'm alive. Yay, look. And if they you don't believe it, do you? They, they don't believe it. Watch stones to bread. Let's go find a blind man. We'll heal him. No, I'll just make you blind and I'll heal you. Uh, and I'll kill you and raise you to life. I'll show you the glory I had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Bow! That's how I would have done it. What does Jesus do? He has a Bible study. That's amazing. The risen Lord of the universe decides the best way to reveal Himself to them is the way He will reveal Himself to them after He ascends. And the way all his followers will meet him as well for millennia in the scriptures. He did the same thing we're doing right now and you do every Sunday morning when you gather here. He did the same thing you do when you get up in the Bible in the morning and you read your Bible. You gather in small groups and you open the scriptures. Isn't that so encouraging to stay at it even when it seems boring or hard to understand or tedious? You stay at it because Jesus Himself used Bible study as the method of knowing Him even when He was right there with Him. Here's what else I want you to notice. We not only know Christ according to the Scriptures, that means then we know the Scriptures according to Christ. He takes them on a grand tour of the Hebrew Scriptures from beginning to end and shows them that it's all ultimately about Him. That's amazing. And so that means we have a a way of understanding the Bible that's Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-pointing, right? And this is a, a way Jesus talked before this moment when he says, you search the Scriptures denouncing the religious leaders because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So it makes sense that His disciples follow His lead in this. Listen to Peter. To Him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Listen to Paul. I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. The interpretive key to the Bible is Jesus. This doesn't mean we seek to find metaphorical, fanciful interpretations with all this symbolism somehow finding Jesus there. It just means we keep saying, how does this point me to Jesus? How does the David and Goliath story point me to Jesus? How does the Sinai covenant established point me to Jesus? How does everything in their point me to Jesus? Imagine that sermon he preached to them. And when those two come in that room, what they reported, what he must have told them about you know, the two said, The Lord's risen, and he's appeared to Simon. And then the two say, We know! We met him on the road! And you should have heard the sermon we heard. He showed that the Bible's all about him. It's all pointing to him. Right in the first verse, when it says, God created the heavens and the earth, do you know Jesus was there with the Spirit and the Father creating as well? In Genesis 3, when. God says there's going to come a child of the woman that one day will crush the head of the serpent and wipe him out and solve all the problems our rebellion started. And do you remember when God took Abraham out of Ur and called him in this covenant? That covenant and that Abraham... And for that matter, Moses and Joseph and and David and Elijah and Ezekiel, all these great prophets and priests and kings, they were great, but they could never really solve our problems. They were just all pointing to Jesus. You remember the law He gave that we could never keep rightly? He kept it for us. Do you remember? And do you remember the sacrificial lamb? when the priest would offer it, but do you know in Jesus, for the first time ever, the last time forever, the lamb and the priest were the same? The one offering and the one offered were the same? He was the one whose blood could take away our sins, unlike ultimately that blood over the doorposts on the Passover. And do you remember when Jesus quoted David on the cross, cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you remember when Isaiah says in chapter 53 that the sins of his people will be on the shoulders of the Messiah, but he will free them from their sins? And do you know that's not the end of the story? Remember, Daniel told us that one day the Messiah would return in the clouds with everlasting glory to be worshiped by the nations in a kingdom that would never end? He's coming again, you know, bring his kingdom in fullness. That's the story. Of Jesus, That's the story of the Bible. So we know Christ according to the Scriptures, and we know the Scriptures according to Christ. And maybe, maybe the reason you find the Bible lifeless and boring is because you're not finding the Word in the Word. It's to point us to Jesus. And and so what we realize is when we go to the Word, it, it doesn't just give us new information. The Bible, as the Spirit works through it, transforms us. They had an experience with Christ according to the Scriptures as the Spirit worked. And that's what we seek. And that brings transformation. That brings a a congregation like this together in beautiful ways. People who would never know each other. Many of you wouldn't like each other. Certainly wouldn't hang out together if it weren't for what Jesus has done in your life. It's this unifying reality now that changes everything. And the last thing I want you to notice is a verse I, I just went right over for years. And it was what the eleven say to them. Did you notice what they say in verse 34? The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Who's Simon? Peter. What's the last thing Peter did before Jesus died on the cross? He denied him three times. One time, afraid of a little girl. After boasting, he'd never deny Jesus. And then, when Jesus rose from the dead, clearly, right at least near the very top of his list of things to do, was go find and visit his old friend who had failed miserably. And you know it wasn't to say, How could you get out of my sight? Oh no, it was to say, Peter, I'm alive. And I know you failed miserably. And I know you're filled with shame. But I'm alive. And it's all going to be okay. Because I know in this world you will have many troubles. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm alive forevermore. That's the reality of the resurrection. Oh, if you're here this morning and you never trusted Jesus, turn from your despair and your sin to Jesus' hope and righteousness. Oh, please make this the morning. Pray with someone before you leave. People here would love to pray with you. People with with, uh, uh, lanyards would love to pray with you. If you don't know anyone here with you, to trust Jesus. If you have trusted Jesus, please lean on Him like never before because He rose from the dead never to die again and He has overcome for us. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are a frail and weak and fallen and distracted and struggling people. We are a people who so desperately needed a Savior. And thank You that Jesus has come joyfully to be that Savior we needed. Lord, I pray for each here that You would be working in the beautifully unique ways and powerful ways the Spirit is able to work. And I pray You would bring all of us closer together to true communion with Christ. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.